Welcome to the Nano Entrepreneurship Network podcast. I'm Lisa Friedersdorf, Director of the National Nanotechnology Coordination Office. The purpose of this podcast series is to share some of the lessons learned from entrepreneurs who have transitioned an idea into the marketplace and to get insight into how they navigated the technology development pathway. Today, I'm joined with Landon Mertz, CEO of Sirion Nanomaterials in Rochester, New York. Landon, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your company? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, as for myself, I have spent the better part of 20 years taking small ideas of companies, growing them, and then ultimately selling them. About 10 or 11 years ago, I joined Sirion Nanomaterials. As far as the the history of the business, it's a fairly interesting story. We came out of Eastman Kodak and our team, our founding technical team, were the people that were creating nanomaterials mostly for photographic film emulsion. And because of that, early on, the namesake of our business was around precipitation-based reactions. And then over the last 10 years or so, we've heavily invested into other synthesis pathways with this focus on design, scale-up, and manufacturing. Today, we have hydrothermal capability, solvothermal capability, carbothermal capability. And the reason why we've been so aggressive in investing in these different pathways is to support our mission to become the go-to place for nanomaterials when industry needs it. And when we were looking at the business very early on, what we said to ourselves was, we really need to focus on what we do and do best. And that is the design, the scale, and the manufacturing. And because of this, our model is very unique and different from most companies in that what we're really selling is advanced expertise that a customer can access around making and manufacturing those nanomaterials. So you mentioned that you work with small companies and then build them and then sell them and move them on to another company. That might be what we sometimes refer to as a serial entrepreneur. In the case of Serion Nanomaterials, what made you interested in being a part of this particular opportunity? What I saw when I initially came into the business was that deep bench of experience. Typically with most startup companies, the bench strength is not that significant. Whereas most of our team had been in the chemical industry or in the nanomaterial industry anywhere from 10 to 20 years. And then also uh, a unique differentiation. When I surveyed the marketplace and I looked at nanomaterial companies in general, I saw that many of them are failing because they could not transition through scale up to manufacturing. And here was a company at the time, I believe they were about two years old, Sirion was scaling up all the time and manufacturing things all the time. And so what that told me was that there was this unique capability that Sirion had that uh, wasn't broadly available within the market. So I want to talk a little bit about your customer discovery. How do you go about finding your customers? It's a great question. A lot of shoe leather. And also we have invested fairly significantly into a marketing operation that leverages quite a bit of social paid advertising. And then truthfully, because of our position in the marketplace, we often have customers coming to us because they know they have a problem that they need to solve. Can you talk a little bit more about the process that you have used to scale up these materials? So most of our process for scale up is proprietary, but we use a program called Design for Manufacture. And Design for Manufacture is designed to ensure that materials we make in the lab today can be manufactured tomorrow. 
Yeah, this often starts with uh, regular routine evaluation of what our researchers are making and how they're making it to ensure that it fits within our manufacturing platform system. It also allows us to discover early on if we find that our researchers are deviating from known processes in our manufacturing plant, then we can start the engineering investigation to determine whether we can build that capability into the plant or modify the process being used by the researcher. So does that include things like avoiding toxic chemicals or looking at sustainable operations? Not necessarily. Sometimes the needs of our customers require that uh, you use materials that are less than desirable. And so then there are processes in place to do uh, HSE operations to ensure that when we're handling it in the lab or in the development lab, where ultimately we're working on scale up or in the manufacturing plan, it's safe for use. I wanted to get your perspective on working with the government. You've had a number of different interactions with different agencies. Can you share your thoughts on challenges from the the small business perspective in working with the government? Absolutely. So I I would really frame it as both challenges and opportunities. Uh, First, I should say that our experience is almost exclusively limited to the defense market, whether it be DOD or the defense industrial base. And the challenges are challenges that I think just about every company experiences, quite honestly. The first is the procurement process. This process typically on average will take nine to 12 months. There is quite a bit of red tape that you have to navigate through and a lot of compliance, everything from the way that your accounting systems are set up to safety requirements and uh, security requirements. Another challenge working in the defense space is definitely timelines for transition. And when I talk about transition, what I'm saying is the the point from invention to the time that actually gets to the warfighter and is fielded. And that can take as little as five years, but oftentimes up to 10 years. And so for companies that are thinking about operating in the space, this is not a short game. This is a long tail strategy where you need to have the right resources, financial and otherwise, to support that entire life cycle to get it to Warfighter. When it comes to opportunities, the thing that I love about defense, truthfully, is the researchers inside, whether it's the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, are really working at the leading edge of technology development and doing things that, quite honestly, the industrial base would never invest to do themselves. And that creates an opportunity for dual use. So provided a material you make on behalf of the defense community doesn't become classified, you do have an opportunity to consider where that material may fit within the industrial base for non-defense purposes. And this creates an economic advantage for certain firms. So we recently hosted a webinar for the Entrepreneurship Network where our guests were the U.S. PTO, Patent and Trademark Office. I know that Syrian holds a number of U.S. patents. Can you share a little bit about your patent strategy? Absolutely. So you'll have to think of our IP strategy within two buckets. The first is our relationship with our customer. So the way we work with customers is any material that we design on their behalf, they're retaining the composition of matter so that they can take that intellectual property, patent it, and create real durable economic value for themselves. And then Sirion often retains what we call the method to make, which is really a process intellectual property. And it's in recognition of the tens of millions of dollars that we've spent to build this advanced expertise so that our customers can create new disruptive products. 
So that's the kind of customer facing side. And then we have our own internal strategy. So the company today holds about 60 patents worldwide. But truthfully, every year we tend to be holding more and more of our intellectual property as trade secret. And it, the reason for that is there are some inherent weaknesses related to process patents that for a manufacturer of nanomaterials can make them vulnerable. So first, once you put a process patent out into the USPTO or abroad, uh, you've now telegraphed to your competitors how you're making this material. And it gives them an opportunity to evaluate what works and try and figure out what workarounds there may be. And that's a big risk. The next point is it's very difficult to detect infringement from a competitor. If they're making a material that is substantially similar to yours, uh, how do you know that it was made with your process or not? And then of course, enforcement is very difficult. And because there is a little bit of a black art to how you make nanomaterials, how you scale them, how you manufacture them, we are tending to err more on the side of trade secret today than patents. So you mentioned the deep bench that you've had and the diversity of your workforce and the experience that they had coming from Kodak. Can you talk a little bit about your workforce strategy? How do you find employees. It's something that certainly our students listening will be curious about, but also small companies who are trying to build a team. We had obviously the benefit of that deep bench of experience, which we were able to get out of Kodak. And that really propelled us forward in the early days. As Kodak has continued to downsize and get smaller, we have not been able to pull from Kodak in order to service our own internal needs and the needs of the customers. We have fairly aggressively uh, started making connections with universities and building a farm team, if you will, where we bring younger people in and we start to train them in the way that we think and look at things in our own internal processes and, and then bring them up through the ranks over time. We, we've also found that in order to recruit the best talent, we need to pull them from markets far outside of Rochester. And because of that, we've brought people from places like Texas in order to get the type of expertise that's required. And when you bring in students in order to teach them your culture, really, do you do that through internships or through uh, research programs with universities? What types of arrangements do you make with universities? So our strategic approach has been to hire students as they're finishing up their degrees three to five months out and then bring them through the induction process on how we operate. So Landon, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. I think this is really helpful to people. As a parting question, do you have any advice that you would give to somebody who is interested in starting a company or students who are interested in being an entrepreneur? Absolutely. I could write a novel. <laughs> As leaders of early stage businesses, there are some things that we have to recognize especially as it relates to what we do today and how we think about the future really can make a big impact on whether we're successful or not. And I tend to put that into three buckets. The first would be business planning. So what I see in the material science community in startups is there is a strong focus on the technology development and the technology roadmap, but there isn't much planning from the business end. And what I'm talking about specifically is the strategy and the cost to uh, penetrate a market? And what's your strategy and what do you think the costs are gonna be to actually scale your business if you're successful? 
I would argue, over the full life of a, a business. Probably 20% is technology development. The other 80% is how am I actually going to make money, provide durable returns to my investors, and ultimately sell the business. So much more business planning needs to happen and happen early. And it shouldn't be a one-time exercise. It should be a fluid process that is ongoing every year, whether you're in year, year one, year three, five, seven. The second bucket I would tend to look at would be financial planning. In most startups, this is not specific to material science, 30 to 50% of companies fail because they just ran out of cash prematurely. And, and what I see, again, because there's such a strong focus on the technology development, that there's no financial planning uh, happening internally and or the resources for financial planning are not there. And I always tell people, this is my personal perspective, in material science, especially in the beginning, whatever you think it's going to take in time and take in cost, multiply it by two. Because especially when you're in the inventive step, you just don't know. The other thing from a financial perspective that I see quite often is that you will raise money to reach a certain inflection point and then attempt to go on and raise your next round. And people actually don't plan for the six, nine, 12 months of burn that are required. And so sometimes they have to completely halt operations and 100% focus on raising money, which is disruptive to the business and puts it at risk. The third bucket for me would be professionalizing the business. And this really has to do with building great teams. So when you have a founder or, you know, founding leadership, it tends to be a small group. That small group is heavily involved in all the detail, all the decision-making, all the minutia. And as an organization naturally needs to grow because naturally it is becoming successful, what happens a lot of times is this founding leadership or the founder can't get out of this mode of being involved in every detail and they, they become choke points. And I think it's incumbent on all leaders, myself included, to take a strong evaluation of not only what your strengths are, but what your weaknesses are, plug those weaknesses with the best team that you can afford to bring in house, and then really empower them to make the decisions that are gonna carry the business forward. And unfortunately, a lot of times, especially for founders, this doesn't happen. And an interesting statistic that I always point back to is 80% of founders are forced out by their investors within five years. So now you're left with 20%. That 20%, only a small fraction, actually make it all the way to the exit of the business. And it's incumbent on, on the founder, not only for the investors, but him or herself and their economic interest to do what's best for the business. And so you should never lose sight of that.